This is Eyewitness News Up Close with Bill Witter. I was only seven years old when my mother was murdered. Her loss drastically changed the trajectory of my life. The daughter of Maureen Brainerd Barnes speaks out after accused Gilgo Beach serial killer Rex Hurman is charged with her murder. Prosecutors revealing new details on how they say they linked Hurman to her brutal death. He was earlier charged with killing three other women. But at least six other Gilgo murders remain unsolved more than a decade later. I want to reporter Josh Einiger, who has been covering the Gilgo Beach murders since the first body was found, is here today with an update. But first on Up Close, Congress approves a temporary budget extension to keep the government from shutting down. Some Republicans still fighting for what they call border security to stop the surge of migrants coming through the southern border. More than 168,000 asylum seekers have already arrived in New York City. So what happens now? This morning, we talked to Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman of New York about how to solve the immigration crisis. Good Sunday morning to you and welcome once again to Up Close. I'm Bill Ritter. The migrant crisis in New York City and the immigration crisis in the country. What to do with all these people and how to pay for it. It is indeed a crisis everywhere. So why hasn't there been a solution for an immigration situation that is, to put it mildly, out of control and lacking in both common sense and humanity? It has been indeed years without consensus on this issue. I talked to New York U.S. Congressman Dan Goldman about that and the latest vote to stop the government from shutting down. Congressman, I want to start with the bill to stop the government from shutting down. It was done, bang, bang, done, done. The Senate did it, then the House did it, and it was temporarily postponed, at least for now. Temporary is the key word here. We're going to go through this again, I take it, right? Yeah, it's going to be it's hard to see how we're going to be able to uh, go on the path that the Republicans want to go on, which is to pass each individual subcommittee appropriations bill, all 12 of them before March 1st or March 8th. Um, And it's very clear that uh, there is no strategy. There is no path forward. There is no longer term thinking from the House Republicans, which has been the case for this entire Congress bill. And so, yes, we'll kick the can down the road. Uh, Nearly half of the Republicans voted against uh, the continuing resolution, meaning that they voted for a government shutdown. Um, So we're not dealing with people acting in good faith in the best interests of the American people on the other side of the aisle, unfortunately. And I expect that they are going to push for some really absurd extremist riders to go in these appropriations bills that uh, ban uh, any support for abortion, that are anti-LGBTQ, that are essentially uh, trying to eliminate individual freedoms uh, for Americans and that there's going to be a fight because we Democrats will not accept that. Well, they say it's it's not just that. It's also because they think that we're spending money in the wrong places and they are really opposed to what's going on in, in, the, in the border down between Mexico and the U.S. Well, the border negotiations are separate. They're with the Ukraine and Israel funding right now. Um, And what we have seen from the Democrats in the Senate and from the White House and President Biden is an eagerness to address the problems at the border, which can only be addressed through legislation. The administration has its hands tied based on what the legislation, what the statutes say right now. 
and they can only do so much to address the uh, overwhelming influx of migrants that's coming th uh, to the border because of a cascade of issues in around the world. Right. Um, but the House Republicans uh, don't want to actually get anything done. You have a bipartisan group of senators working hard to get something done with the White House and Secretary Mayorkas in the room. And the House Republicans, on the other hand, are trying to impeach Secretary Mayorkas and President Biden. That doesn't help anything. That doesn't get anything done. And so, you know, once again, it's the extremist my way or the highway view, even though House Republicans, uh, Republicans are in the majority and only one of the three bodies involved with legislation. There are many people that you know, that I know, including me, who has family, uh, who came to this country from other places. And they went into that harbor out there and uh, not not literally, but figuratively kissed that statue out there. They came. A lot of people, including some of my relatives, including some of my friends, who are, I would say, Democrats, are just tired of what's happening at the border. And why isn't the, 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 an attempt in Congress by bipartisan people to say, hey, we got to figure this out because that's our job and our responsibility. Stop the extremes and let's figure out what's the best policy to, to redefine immigration in this country. Bill, you, you raise a great point, and it's something that many of my Democratic colleagues and I also support. And it is clear that's what's going on in the Senate right now. Uh, we do need to have a much more orderly immigration process uh, that increases the amount of lawful immigration through visas and other uh, more routinized scheduled forms. And we also need to fix our asylum process. Um, there are far too few visas and there are far too many people in the backlog waiting for asylum. And we want to come together to have a common sense solution to solve the problems at our border while welcoming in immigrants as this country has always done, as my grandmother did as she came through Ellis Island. And so many of us or those who came before us to this country have done. And it's not it, the problem what we have, and I, I really want you to understand this, is what the Republicans in the House are proposing is draconian, it is racist, it is xenophobic, it is anti-immigrant, and it is ineffective. And they say they will not budge. That is not working in any bipartisan way. And so we are eager to do so on the Democratic side. We just don't have a good faith partner on the Republican side because they view immigration as a political weapon that they would rather have than to actually address and solve the problems at the border. Right. Let's talk a little bit briefly about what's in, going on in your backyard in parts of Brooklyn, where uh, there's a tent city for migrants, a couple thousand of them. And they were, when there was a rainstorm two weeks ago, they were brought out and they stayed in a public school, also in Brooklyn. And the kids in that school had to go home and be remote learning for the day. Um, is the federal government doing enough to help the people of your city, New York City, to fund this? Uh, no. And once again, this goes back to legislation. Uh, there's no billion dollar pot of money that's just sitting there for 
the Biden administration to distribute however it wants. There are specific programs that are authorized by Congress and that are funded by Congress that can reimburse cities and localities for doing that. The Republicans want to zero out that program. They want to defund the program that would reimburse cities and states for the money they're spending on immigration, which is a federal issue. So we are up against uh, a, a Republican majority that does not want to help cities in the North, uh, blue cities with black mayors. They're not interested in doing that. And so the administration's hands are tied. What we need to be doing is very aggressively, and I've been talking to the mayor's office about this, making sure that every single person eligible for a work permit has that application filed and can get that as soon as possible. Because we have many employers who want to hire some of these migrants who have come here. We have migrants who are desperate to work. That's how our economy grows. And that's how we get folks out of the shelters into their own residences. Congressman, one more question before I say goodbye to you uh, and our viewers do as well, at least for this edition of Up Close. Um, tell me what you've done. You've, uh, you're now uh, uh, filing a formal censure and asking for a formal censure. Uh, against a fellow congressperson, uh, Elise Stefanik, uh, in upstate New York. What are, you, what are you saying that she has done? Well, Congresswoman Stefanik has increasingly ratcheted up her rhetoric, uh, along with Donald Trump, to provide aid, comfort, and support to the January 6th convicted criminals, the insurrectionists. And a week and a half ago, or two weeks ago, she called those folks who have been convicted of crimes and are in prison in D.C. hostages, uh, which is, of course, providing additional support for those who attack the Capitol, but also really belittling and demeaning the Israeli hostages who remain in horrific conditions in Gaza right now. And we are in an election year. Uh, we have a lot of concerns about election security. We have a criminal defendant running for the presidency who has been open about his desire to become a dictator. And we in Congress, no matter what our political leanings are, cannot stoop to that level. We need to be better than Donald Trump, and we cannot be providing support and comfort to those who would otherwise undermine our democracy and try to take down our free and fair elections. And it is high time that Ms. Stefanik stop with this rhetoric uh, so that we can build trust in our system, in our democracy, and in our elections. We've got about 15 seconds left. Have you talked to her about it? Have you asked her to stop rather than take the, uh, the censuring road? Look, I think everyone has been quite open um, on on many sides, and there have been Republicans as well, as well who have uh, rebuked her comments. Um, but there's nothing that seems to stop her, and including even after we filed the censure motion, okay. she doubled down even more. And she said it once again, and she's trying to use the inflammatory and destructive rhetoric of Donald Trump because she appears to be auditioning to become his vice president. And it is incredibly dangerous, and it is not what New York stands for. And it certainly is not what New Yorkers all around this state stand for as we look at many close house races coming up in November. It was close to 15 seconds, but thank you. I thank you for your time. Uh, Congressman Dan Goldman, thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Now to the Gilgo Beach serial murders, a big development this past week. This case has mesmerized people in the tri-state and the country, for that matter, for more than a decade. The accused serial killer, Rex Heuerman, this week charged in the murder of a fourth woman. 
The body of Maureen Brainard Barnes found in 2010. Prosecutors this week revealing new details about the investigation that led to these new charges. It's a very big deal. I would news reporter Josh Einiger, who has covered the story since the first bodies were found. Yep. Josh, so what surprised you most in this week's big development? So, Bill, in all the years I've been covering this, I've seen a lot of remarkable developments, but one of the more remarkable ones was the press conference after the arraignment on this fourth case, and we had a chance to see the sister of Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Can, And she was a fixture of our coverage 13 years ago, and when she spoke this week, her family was finally getting some degree of closure now that DNA technology helped close the loop on the last of the so-called Gilgo Four. The victims of the Gilgo Beach killer were more than victims and far more than sex workers. They were people with parents and siblings and little girls. I remember she read to me every night and now I can no longer remember the sound of her voice. Nikki Brainerd Barnes was just seven when her mom Maureen was murdered, her body covered in burlap and dumped in dense brush on this desolate barrier beach off Long Island's South Shore. Maureen was a mother of two amazing children and they will forever be without their mother. <laughs> Sorry. Maureen was my older sister who was always there for me when I needed her. Maureen was inspired to be a writer and she loved reading books. She was only 25 years old. She had her whole life ahead of her. Almost exactly 13 years since the gruesome discovery of her body and three others launched this sensational case. Prosecutors formally charged her accused killer with murder. It means a lot uh, to the task force because um, we know that it, it provides a small measure of closure for the families. Uh, and, you know, we're, so we're really happy to provide that with, for them. Rex, did you do it? Last July, the Gilgo Beach Task Force closed in on Massapequa Park architect Rex Hewerman, charging him with three of the so-called Gilgo Four, the first sets of remains discovered along the Ocean Parkway. Brainerd Barnes is the fourth to be charged. Prosecutors say a strand of hair attached to a belt that bound her body is a DNA match with Hewerman's wife. The link from an energy drink can their daughter had on the Long Island Railroad. Court documents say undercover detectives following her recovered the can from the trash when she threw it out so they could compare familial DNA, proving the belt had come from Hewerman's house. Like in the other cases, he proclaimed his innocence. He said, I'm not guilty of these charges. He's looking forward to fight these charges, and, and we're doing that. For years, it looked like there might not be charges filed against any suspect for the murder of my mother. While the loss of my mom has been extremely painful for me, the indictment by the grand jury has brought hope for justice for my mom and my family. It's important to point out that Hewerman's wife, Asa Ellerup, is not accused in this or in any of the murders. Prosecutors, however, say it's evidence that links Hewerman to the crime scene. Meanwhile, Hewerman is now charged with four murders, but there are six other victims whose bodies were found along the Ocean Parkway around the same time. Hewerman has not been linked to those cases, which Bill remain unsolved. Yes, and that's the, that's the spooky part of this, right? Yeah. Four people have been identified, and right. there are charges, and for that people, certainly for this, that, that daughter, who's now a young woman, of it's, it's less closure, it seems to me, and more justice, because they, they say they can link someone to this crime. Right, and that's for the, these four. So it's important to point out, you know, the cops for a long time have believed there were more than one serial killer potentially right. at play here. And so here's, here's how this works. The four bodies that we're talking about here that Hewerman's been charged with, they were the first to be found. 
but they were the last to be dumped. They were the most recently dumped, if we put it that way. Once they were discovered, the cops spent months searching the Ocean Parkway. They found six other bodies, which had been clearly dumped earlier. And they were different. They'd been, in some cases, dismembered. In some cases, other parts of those people had already been found 40 miles away and identified, by the way, years earlier. In one case, it was a man. In one case, it was a baby. So there were no similarities here on the face between the, the so-called Gilgo yeah. Four and the, la the next six. So why did this spot become a killing field like that? So it's, or a burying ground? You have to see it to understand it. You know, when I first started covering Long Island and I was working with photographer Tony Saturno, who's still there, yeah. We, we would take Ocean Parkway as a shortcut around the Southern State Parkway because there was tons of traffic there. And it's just this deserted stretch of expanse with nothing for miles. And, you know, it's, it's really remarkable how deserted it is in such a populated area. And so it, it shows you how, how great of a place it is for someone to do this if they were so inclined. A, a remarkable story. And when the reporters involved in it, you and others, and you've been here the longest with this, how many times do you get a story like this yeah. that lasts for so long. And I have to say, I just quickly, I just have to say, it really shows you know, the importance of local news yep. and the longevity yep. of our newsroom in particular, that we were all here 13 years ago. And still you are. and Liz, Zahir in the control room, and me out in the field when they found those first sets of bodies. And then we were all together again 12 and a half years later when they made this arrest. And it's really pretty remarkable. And right now, and you right and I are here, Zahir is in the control room mm -hmm. right now. All right, Josh. Thank you for all that. You know, there have been so many twists and turns uh, in all this time. And Eyewitness News has now produced a nine-part digital series about this. We're taking an in-depth look into the murders and the arrest of Rex Hurman. One of the most significant things I've ever heard any kind of public official say, I think it was the first full day after that first report that we did. And there's a press conference with the man who was then the police commissioner. And he said something that to this day, I remember everything about what he said and how he said it. He said, we're, we're looking, looking at, at that. that. We're looking at that, that we could have a serial killer. And it was something about the syntax and the way he phrased it. It, it, it was in response to somebody said, is this a serial killer? And to this day, so many years later, symbolizes you know, the moment that it was clear that this was something Enormous. I don't think it's a coincidence that four bodies ended up uh, in this area. When you're looking for one person and then you find three other remains, you know it's bigger than what you're covering at the time. And then we'd have these updates and they were typically on anniversaries or whatever. And I think it belies the dysfunction at the top of the police department at the time because they clearly didn't know whether it was one person or two people or three people. Anything is possible at this point because there's so many unanswered questions. There was a lot of speculation because it's still a remote area. Maybe more than one person used this as a dumping ground because it was that isolated. The weather conditions were that extreme out there. I don't want anybody to think that uh, we have a Jack the Ripper running around Suffolk County with uh, blood dripping from a knife. They told us all of those things over a course of many months. They said this is a serial killer. They say definitely the work of a serial killer. And they said they think this is two serial killers. The killings may be the work of more than one person. This is not an episode of CSI. 
This is an intensive, long-term investigation that includes the use of sophisticated technology as well as good old-fashioned detective work. Then they said they think this is three serial killers. A short time ago, police said the bodies found dumped at several beaches are the work of at least three killers, not one. And what is now very clear is that the area in and around Gilgo Beach has been used to discard human remains for some period of time. And then again, they came back to one. But the theory is now that we're dealing with one serial killer. It's sort of the tragedy of this story is how incompetently managed this investigation was from the beginning. Suffolk County had never dealt with an investigation like this, and they were very clearly in over their heads. Eyewitness to Gilgo Beach, now streaming on our website and all of our digital platforms. It is indeed a fascinating look. When we come back, our political team on Mr. Trump, Mr. Biden, and the New Hampshire primary. That's next. Welcome back, Job Close. Our political team is here. ABC News political director Rick Klein and political consultant Hank Scheinkoff. Gentlemen, nice to see you and thank you for joining us on Up Close. Uh, let's start with, I think, the, the main headline coming up in politics, the New Hampshire primary on Tuesday. Rick, you were in New Hampshire for part of this week. And I, are you going to go back on Tuesday as well? And what do you think is going to come out of all this? And what will it take to get the Republican Party to not be uh, divided as it is? Because I think that's what Mr. Trump's interested in. Yeah, I'll be close to you in New York City. We're anchoring our election coverage. Right? I get uh -huh. to do the big boards, Bill, on Tuesday night. But, but look, this is a very consequential primary because Donald Trump's romp in Iowa puts the pressure on the other candidates. You only have three candidates. It was kind of wild. I've been to New Hampshire many times. This was the least amount of campaigning I've ever seen. Of course, the debate that we hope to do on Thursday night didn't happen because Nikki Haley and Donald Trump wouldn't commit to participating. And now this is really the, the last best chance, I think, for a competitive primary would be a Nikki Haley surprise, either winning or coming very, very close to show that she's got the kind of voters that uh, that can challenge Donald Trump down the stretch. It could be that this primary is effectively wrapped up in the next couple of weeks, which would be wild by any modern standard. So, Hank, do you agree with that? Is, it, is there a chance? Let's say let's say. The, the former uh, governor of South Carolina does defeat Mr. Trump, comes in first place. Is that going to be enough to convince others to start voting for her in the primaries in the other states? Likely not, but it will be a great show to watch. And I mean, we actually have a Republican Party that's somewhat competitive, at least temporarily. Is it unlikely that Nikki Haley could win in New Hampshire? It's not unlikely. New Hampshire voters have always done the opposite of what people expect. Uh, Iowa was a complete blowout, but if this goes into New Hampshire with a blowout, it's all over. Everybody should go home, pack their bags, and wait for the coronation of Trump at the convention. It was interesting, I think, after uh, what happened in Iowa, and as we this last week, as we get closer to the New Hampshire primary, Rick, that the two top candidates there in, Ohio, in, uh, in New Hampshire went after each other. It was not pretty. Yeah, 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 I I exactly. I mean, that, that's what we're seeing right now is... Uh, is an attempt to try to tear each other down and you know a lot of a lot of a lot of people in, in our world have been wondering what waiting for i mean they're, they're they're in this competitive primary nikki haley has tried to do what may end up being an impossible task which is kind of bridging the the never trump anti-trump world back with with the 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 folks who were very maga and make this case look chaos follows him that sort of thing it's hard though that may not be a reconcilable difference and i've talked to a lot of new hampshire voters in the last couple of days that you know, are anti-Trump and are kind of holding their noses and picking Haley or still not sold that it's even possible. And uh, a big win by Trump is just would be a huge message that guess what? He's still the guy in the Republican Party. All right, Hank, your political consultant hat, please put on uh, as if you're, you know, advising these candidates or certainly the Democratic candidates that you that you work with. Um, what, what does it mean? 
uh, do they, how do they feel about this? Because there is some talk among Democrats that Haley actually has a better chance against Mr. Biden than Mr. Trump does. Hard to believe that Trump's numbers are so huge. Uh, and if you look at Iowa, I mean, <laughs> you look at the Iowa caucus numbers, you look at the counties where Trump did well, you look at the education levels of the people and you look at their voting patterns. It's pretty extraordinary. They are and their and their relative uh, incomes. Uh, the MAGA Republicans, the populist people who think they've gotten a bad deal, who are less uh, less educated, earning less, are with Trump. They should be part of the Democratic base, but they're not. And that's the difference here. Haley will not do as well with those folks. She hasn't thus far. New Hampshire's not really a test of that, but other states could be. Yeah. OK, let's uh, move to Mr. Biden and, and see how he's taking all this and what his strategy is. Uh, Rick, if, if uh, when you're reporting on all this and you, you meet with your, your journalists out there and talk about this, uh, where does it go here? Because a lot of Democrats, you know, they're going to vote for, uh, for Mr. Biden, but they're not so happy about it either. Yeah, and there's actually a key test on this on Tuesday uh, because President Biden is not on the ballot in New Hampshire, but his supporters are urging a writing campaign for him anyway. Uh, no one has been successful in a writing campaign in New Hampshire since Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and he did not end well for his campaign in 1968. He dropped out of the race, of course, famously just a few weeks later. Biden is looking to make some kind of a statement at the start of the process. It's not because he's going to lose the nomination. It really isn't the same as LBJ and, and McCarthy back, back in 68. But what is the same is the real problem that he has uh, in convincing voters that uh, in his own party that he's the right choice moving forward. And I am watching this very closely because Dean Phillips, Marion Williamson, they're not going to be the nominees either. But how many people are excited to vote for Joe Biden in New Hampshire, a politically connected place? I think it's actually pretty important. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good point. What did Mr. Johnson say, Hank? Uh, you know, I will not seek, nor will I accept, nor will I accept the nomination of my party. party. There you go. That's, that's like yesterday, but it's, a long time ago. Uh, so so what is this going to mean? Let's talk briefly. We have a minute left. Hank, you'll get the last word on this. A third party. Uh, there are people who are talking about that, but it, it, the history of third parties, we've talked about this before, not very good. History of third parties are lousy as victory tools, but they're very good at destroying other people's candidacies. Robert Kennedy will hurt both Trump and hurt Biden if they're the nominees, but it'll hurt Biden more. Okay. So what do you think? Who, who gets hurt more in all that, Rick? I, I think Biden is hurt more by any third party candidates because Trump's supporters are so are so strong. And, you know, all the historical references here. I mean, the two references of an RFK election yes. is pretty is pretty remarkable. But uh, it all it, it goes around, comes around pretty clearly. Well, OK, it's going to be an interesting week. Uh, good luck to both of you. We'll see you next time on Up Close. Appreciate you bet. It. Thanks. Thank right. you. Rick and Hank, thanks very much. We'll be right back. And that will do it for this edition of Up Close Tiempo with my pal Joe Torres is coming up next. If you missed any of today's programs, no worries. I'll post today's segments on my Facebook page sometime tomorrow. And check out our new Up Close podcast on all of our digital platforms. Thank you all for watching. I'm Bill Ritter. And for all of us here at Channel 7 Eyewitness News, we wish you health and peace. And let's take care of each other.